Welcome to the Seller Roundtable e-commerce coaching and business strategies with Andy Arnott and Amy Wees. Right, uh, another question. Um, so somebody's asking for like, you know, and, and we've seen this a lot, like you, you had mentioned uh, retail arbitrage, uh, online arbitrage. I've never been a fan yeah. of those business models. And you know, the people who do that probably hate me because I always kind of talk crap about it. <laughs> I think Jess, uh, Amy, I think Jess might, might, might not like me, but um, I, I, I've been hearing more and more uh, that, you know, th there's a lot of people getting suspended and booted and things like that because these big brands now that they have these tools are, are starting to go on and be really, uh, protective of their listings because they, you know, they, they don't want people to go to, to target and find something that's 50% off, then bring it to Amazon and undercut their price that they're doing on Amazon, which I totally get. Um, but uh, so, so how can you protect yourself if you're doing online arbitrage, retail arbitrage? Um, do you just need uh, an invoice? Do you have to sell that product as um, not new? Because like, as you said, you know, maybe they have some warranties or things like that. Um, how can a retail arbitrage or online arbitrage person protect themselves in the new climate on Amazon with, you know, a, a brands having a little bit more power? It's really dependent on the product. So, um, you know, how aggressive the brand is. Um, some brands will allow you to sell the products, you know, used like new, and then that's fine. Other brands are really, really aggressive and they will go after people for selling new products. And so it, you know, is, becomes a major issue. Um, if they suspend your, if they try to, you know, get you kicked off Amazon and they first say they file a counterfeit complaint and it's not really counterfeit, well, then that's a whole nother ballgame in itself that probably, you know, would warrant a whole, you know, I did a whole podcast on it a couple of weeks ago. But um, if they, but if Amazon, you know, for instance, just wants, you know, say they send you an email saying, hey, we think that you're selling inauthentic products or we think that, you know, we're just checking in to make sure the quality of your products matches what you're selling. Um, I think the question really focuses on that type of claim from Amazon. So in that case, do you need to have a invoice from Nike? Um, it depends. If you want to get ungated, you need a Nike invoice. If you want to just sell the product and you're, you're already ungated and you're just trying to prove authenticity, then what a lot of retail arbitrage and online arbitrage sellers will provide is just their order summary or their receipt. So what we see a lot of um, on the retail arbitrage side of sellers, the way they do it in terms of SOP is when they get a product, say they buy it from, you know, Ross and it's, you know, 25 bucks and they're going to sell it on Amazon for a hundred, whatever they get, whatever it's going to go for. They will unbox that product at their, you know, at their office or home office or their, their warehouse. They'll take a picture immediately with the Ross tag, which has the SKU number next to the receipt so that you clearly see the receipt next to the item and they'll photograph the item from a couple of different angles to prove that it's a new item. And then they'll send that into Amazon for sale. And then if Amazon ever asks for proof of, you know, proof of authenticity, they'll send those photos along with a copy of a scanned in copy of their invoice so that Amazon has all the information they know to see that it's legitimate. And so it really comes down to effective organization and effective, you know, crossing T's and dotting I's to make sure all the ducks are in a row in order to not get, you know, and not to get accused of selling inauthentic items. Right. That that's fantastic advice. So I'm I'm guessing people like uh, or companies like Disney probably are are are, are probably pretty uh, ruthless when it comes to um uh, to to coming after uh, retail arbitrage people. Um, it really depends. Um, a lot of times, what we're seeing now is it's not the companies themselves that are being ruthless. It's the marketing companies that they've hired on, and a lot of times these marketing companies are trying to save the company money, and so they're saying, hey you don't need to hire a law firm to take care of these unauthorized sellers. We've got this fantastic cool tool called Project Zero, 
or brand registry, we're just going to, we'll get them taken down within 24 hours, guaranteed. And then what they do is they just file a false counterfeit complaint and get them kicked off. And so like, for instance, Nickelodeon is doing this now and Nintendo's doing it. And so those are two brands that are really aggressive. And a lot of times they're becoming way too overprotective. So we've seen sellers with product names that are similar to, you know, products made by Nintendo, but used in a totally different context, not even related to video games, that have gotten pegged as selling counterfeit Nintendo products because the software that Nintendo uses is not smart enough to realize that uh, just because Nintendo has a gaming console named this, it doesn't mean that their trademark extends to other products as well because it's not a famous gaming console. It's like a, you know, like imagine PS3. There's plenty of ways that you can have a PS3 that's not PlayStation that would fi- that would legitimately fit into the name of a product, and they're suspending people saying they're selling counterfeit PS3s, you know, based on that, and it's kind of yeah. Uh, yeah, I have noticed. Know, so that, yeah, I have noticed on some of our products that, uh, along with Project Zero, they even said that they're, um, you know, rolling out some AI tools that automatically flag products, which we've gotten a bunch of products, you know, flagged in that, and then it gets put in the penalty box, and you have to go, no, it's it's legit, and all that good stuff. So that's that's pretty frustrating. But you led into you you segmented perfectly into kind of my next topic, my my next set of questions, which are. Uh, you know, a lot of people when they're first starting Amazon businesses, I always tell them if they're going to be, you know, if they're serious, if they really want to, you know, have a go at it to the first absolute first step that they should do is to file a trademark. Um, do you agree with that? And if so, what, you know, there's word mark, there's design mark. Um, what is the most versatile? What should Amazon sellers be doing on the trademark front to protect their brands and uh, to, to make, you know, to, to make it to have themselves set up to, to um, you know, protect themselves the, the best in that sense? So absolutely, as soon as they can afford it, I definitely recommend getting the trademark. Um, not only do you get access to EBC and you know protecting your brand, but you're building something that you can sell. And I think Amy's done an incredible job of educating people on the importance of intellectual property and how it grows your business value. Um, and so it really is, you know, I think Amy's got the message out there really perfectly when she tells people, you know, you're investing in your business. Are you doing a hobby or are you doing a business? And that's, I think, is really crucial because so many people say like, oh, well, because like, like your question, which is better, you know, word mark or design mark, it's really hard to say because it depends. It depends on what you're selling. It depends on your category. It depends on your mark even. And so that's where, you know, talking to a trademark lawyer is really important for making sure you get the best mark for your business because there's no one-size-fits-all solution, unfortunately. It would be nice if there was, but it's even more important not to DIY this, that, because, you know, I'll say myself, you know, before I became a lawyer, I had gotten a trademark for the last name Schick on pet supplies. And I thought that that would be totally normal. And, you know, Schick Razors doesn't make pet supplies. Um, And yet when I was in law school, I got a notice one time from Schick, um, that is actually Everlast or EverReady or whatever they're called now, the battery company that owns Schick. That, they, uh, that I was infringing on their trademark and they filed cancellation proceedings and got my trademark canceled. And um, granted the first Schick trademark was when I was like 10 years old that I'd filed for and it, it took them a while to catch it. But one day I guess, you know, their AI caught it and they canceled, they went and caught, they went for cancellation and it was granted because I didn't fight back. I, was, I wasn't making, I just didn't, I never launched any products that so didn't make any sense to. But a lot of, you know, a novice might, make the same mistake with a real business that they're trying to make money on 
And if they just paid a lawyer to do the trademark for them, they would have avoided all that headache. You know, I even have a seller had a seller reach out to me. He was making a million dollars a year on one of his products and he's being sued for trademark infringement right now because he had a trademark in the UK, which is what he got to get on brand registry. When he applied for a trademark in the U S for the same brand, because he's already making a million a year on it. Um, the brand he found out because the trademark examiner refused registration that there was a confusingly similar mark. Uh, the brand, I guess, was alerted based on the trademark application being filed. They must, they're probably using automated monitoring software. So they were alerted as well. And now they're suing him for damages. So he's going to be paying, you know, all sorts of damages for infringing their mark because he was selling for several years millions of dollars of product on a confusingly similar mark, which is trademark infringement. So not only does he now have to pay a lawyer to get a new trademark and do it all from scratch, he has to pay for all new branding. But he's going to be paying who knows how much in settlement. And it's a really sad situation. But a lot of people saved money. A, a lot of people are take trying to take those shortcuts, like they're registering their marks in Mexico or in um, in the UK. And then they're, um, you know, because they can get to brand registry faster, but that's what you're pointing out, Jeff, is that there could be similar marks by the time they get around to the US side, they don't even realize that they could be sued for all of their profits. Right. And there's nothing that they'll be able to do. And here they were just trying to get a trademark approved faster. Uh, something that you guys mentioned in your group, in your Facebook group the other day, one of your groups, you guys have a couple. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to keep track of all of them. They're great though. But something that one of you guys mentioned that I think is really interesting for Amazon sellers is buying an existing trademark. So there's this, um, you know, apparently there's all these existing trademarks that are already filed that are for sale. Can you tell us about that and how somebody might be able to take advantage of something like that? So it's very interesting. Um, that's the one area of trademark law that's kind of unsettled because the Lanham Act, which governs trademarks, they really don't want basically trademark squatting. So what happened with cyber squatting in, in the internet, you know, field of where people, yeah, and I've got a portfolio of domains, so I'll admit that I'm kind of, Cyber squatting on some of them, but they'll all be something. Andy like will, Andy will raise you one. Yeah, I bet. I bet <laughs> Jeff, how many do you have? I bet I beat you. Let, 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 let's uh, compare. Probably around fifty. Not. Oh, I know, not oh more man, than I, I more than ten x that baby. He's really? bad. He's really bad. I, I always tell uh, my joke is like you know a lot of women will collect shoes. I collect domains. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But I could, I could, yeah, I think if anybody ever comes after me though, I can literally like pull out my. I also have like, you know, a keep is like a Google, you know, it's kind of like ever, uh, Evernote or, you know, a lot of those like notepad tools. And I literally have like, you know, probably a thousand keep things about like invention and, you know, I'll tag it and then I'll have like a little description. I could say, see, this is what this domain was going to be for. I'm not <laughs> squatting on it. I just never, I just haven't gotten to it yet. It's on my list. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, yeah, no, so it's interesting. Like, so in terms of purchasing a uh, trademark, it's totally doable. But there's a lot of, it's definitely like you've got to do a lot of due diligence because first things first, you want to make sure the mark you're buying was not registered as a squatting mark. So it has to have actually been used in commerce for some legitimate purpose. So, you know, like for instance, the mark right now um, I've been really interested in is Enron because it, you know, failed a long time ago and it has a really cool E and I just, I've always thought it was kind of a neat little mark. Well, 
Enron, you could theoretically buy that from the bankruptcy estate if you wanted to. I don't know if they'd sell it because they, you know, I'm not sure what they're up to these days. But if you were to buy it from them, that would be okay because it was legitimately used in, com in commerce. However, the ones that you would really have to watch out for is if somebody had some random mark like Imeron or something, assuming that that was never used for anything and that it's never been used in commerce, but they made a fraudulent application on the Patent and Trademark Office saying that they were. So maybe they provided, like, like they claimed that it was for energy you know, meters and they showed a picture of an energy meter bearing the mark Imeron. Um, you, I hope you can see where I'm going with this, this idea. But what would happen is that if they, if you purchase that mark from Emeron and it's not real and it was never used in commerce, you basically bought a mark that was obtained through fraud. So if you ever go to sue somebody for violating your mark, they could actually go back all the way to that first person that filed and show, Hey, wait a second. You bought a mark that was obtained fraudulently from somebody else. Um, therefore, the whole thing is fraud, so you don't have any rights. And now you basically just wasted all that time and money. Um, the other big thing is that when you buy a mark, you can't just buy the mark by itself. Um, marks can only be transferred as goodwill because they're intended to be representative of a source indicator of goodwill. So if you're going to buy a mark, it has to A, be used in commerce, and B, you have to buy the company that affiliates with it. Mm. Now, the mark could be put in its own holding company, and you're acquiring that. But the key thing is, is you have to be acquiring the goodwill. So there's a lot of like little gotchas that have to be followed. So it's not quite as simple. There's a couple of websites out there called, that are like trademark exchanges for buying and selling trademarks. And I don't think that they are following the law correctly. So I don't, we don't recommend any of those, but it's just something to think about if you, you know, it is possible to do, but you just gotta be really careful with it. If that makes sense. And I would probably stick away from any of those websites because I don't think they're doing their due diligence to, protect people because they're in for a quick buck because, um, you know, the way they market the website is pretty much like they know they're breaking trademark law. They're just trying to make a quick amount of money. So we'll see. Jeff, quick question. Wouldn't, wouldn't like a simple workaround to that, you know, like, like the, the black hat, <laughs> my, <laughs> my black hat's going to get put on right now for this. But cause actually it's funny that you mentioned this. Cause I had actually talked to a friend of mine who has his wife's a, a lawyer. And I was like, I have this awesome idea, you know, like, and, um, and one of the one of the things that I thought about uh, for for about for doing this would be like couldn't technically couldn't you spin up a Shopify site, do a Google ad, sell one T-shirt? Now you've you've you know that that mark has now been used in commerce. I mean, I, I get where you're saying that like you know if you took that if somebody took that to court they'd probably frown on that. But like wouldn't that be a really hard case to win? It's a, how, it how would be a hard. How would they prove that, you know, how would they prove that you were, you know, that you weren't, you know, actively trying to, you know, I, I could see if you tried to sell the mark like the next day, but right. you know, like if, if there's a reasonable amount of time between that, like I just, it seems like, uh, you know, legally that'd be a, that, that'd be a hard case to win. Right. Um, it's just, you know, it's, the law is, you know, it's, it's a gray area of the law. So it really is going to come down to like either the judge or the jury and what they, what do they perceive your actions were? So if your actions were to to do this, then they're going to be less. They're going to be a little less lenient than if they think that you just had a bad, like you had really bad luck and that you just had terrible marketing and only sold one shirt ever. So if, it depends on your story. It really is going to. It's really fact specific. That That's why sense. I say there's a lot of risk with these with these trademark you know brokerages because the trademark brokerages are not doing that sort of due diligence to see 
if these marks were ever legitimately used or if they were used just to sell one t-shirt. Right. Well, well, here's hoping that someday that, you know, the trademark office comes up with something a little more streamlined rather than, you know, especially nowadays because of, of the, the, the benefits that Amazon's giving trademark holders, you know, the, the trademarks now are taking, you know, before, I think my first trademark I filed, what, in 2013, 14, uh, maybe it was before then. Well, you know, it took like six months. Now it's like, good luck if, if you get, a, you know, get through a year and get your mark. Um, you know, it's just like the backlog is horrible. You know, welcome, welcome to, to anything run by the government. Amy and I both know that firsthand as federal, former federal employees, but, um, yeah, I just, I guess, I guess as a brand, uh, owner and, and somebody who's, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm constantly spinning up new businesses. It's just frustrating that, you know, in this electronic day and age that there's not a better system, uh, you know, to, to, to do that. Well, one thing that should help all tell you that there is light at the end of the tunnel there with the USPTO. Uh, they're in the process right now of, of restricting who can file trademarks, uh, saying that the only people who can file trademarks on their own are U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents. So anybody, any business that's not based in the United States, legitimately based in the United States, and any business or any you know person that's not in the United States is going to have to go through a lawyer. So what that's going to do is it's going to force and a U.S.-based lawyer. So it's a great win for lawyers, obviously. It's also a great win for U.S. citizens and taxpayers that are funding the USPTO. So that way, you know, when you submit your uh, trademark application, you're not behind 50 people from 50 different countries that did it themselves, that may have no clue of what they were doing, that have complex marks and that the patent officer is going to have to, and the trademark officer is going to have to spend more time reviewing those before they get to yours, because at least if, uh, you know, I have no problem with, with foreign sellers obtaining trademarks, but if they're going through a lawyer, at least you know the application is going to be substantially ready for it to be reviewed, rather than them just getting a trash application that they DIY to save money. Um, and it's also going to help prevent fraud, too, because lawyers cannot submit fraudulent applications. So some of the black hat tactics that we see of people getting, you know, fake trademarks to, t to wipe other competitors off Amazon that's going to be wiped out as well because they're not, no lawyers going to submit that sort of documentation. So there's some positive from that. Oh, that's interesting. That should help. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I mean, there, there's definitely some, uh, you know, government entities that are, that are finally starting, you know, starting to get a little bit better in, in the form of like, you know, digital filing. I know that, that the, the USPTO site itself has come a long way just in the last few years, but that that's interesting. Uh, that'll, that'll be interesting how that, how that plays out, uh, you know, process wise, how much longer it's going to, you know, how, or if it's going to streamline that or, or what, um, right. anything else, Jeff, that you want to, that I, that I haven't, uh, grilled you on that you think is important for Amazon sellers to know, uh, legally once they're, you know, once they're either, uh, getting established or once they are established on Amazon, any, anything that you kind of require, you know, essential reading or, or, um, you know, essential material or just, you know, tips, tricks, things like that. I think, um, a lot of sellers don't look at different U.S. laws and different state laws enough. So they'll get started and they think Amazon's the Wild West. And they don't realize that, for instance, like California Prop 65, that is starting to play a bigger role on, on Amazon. So you need to make sure that you're selling Prop 65 compliant products. Um, they also don't realize that um, products that they sell, especially in the nutritional supplement space, um, that people can get hurt. So like if you kill somebody, you're going to, you know, it's because you're selling a faulty product, it matters and it's going to, you know, you'll be affected by it. 
So really doing your due diligence, you know, you can't just launch a nutritional supplement just because Amazon makes it easy and you have 5,000 bucks to put towards purchasing inventory. If you don't understand the fact that you need to be getting it tested and making sure that what's on the label matches what's in the product, because there's more and more um, lawyers out there that we're starting to see that, you know, I hate to call them bottom feeders, because, but they really are. And they're basically making their mission to sue Amazon sellers for damages because of selling either faulty products or selling products that where, you know, for instance, especially in the nutritional space, you know, where the supplement contents label and ingredients label doesn't match what they're selling. Um, and even like there's a lawyer out in California now that's got like a little racket scheme going on where he purchases different um, health and beauty products and nutritional supplements, anything that is for use on humans that's covered by Prop 65. And all he does is just shop Amazon Prime all day long, buying products, sending them to a lab that I would imagine he has some financial stake in, and the lab tests all the products and shows which ones don't meet, don't match their labels, and then he files lawsuits on behalf of the people of the state of California because they've got like an interesting little program that allows lawyers to recover um, attorney's fees and damages if you file on behalf of the state, and then the state will pay for your legal fees if you win. And so it's a... Uh, it's a, you know, I think sellers are going to start getting more and more affected by these programs. They really need to watch out because um, the Wild West days, they're really kind of gone. Um, same thing even goes with like launching products. So, you know, don't try to manipulate rank or do these incentivized reviews because like in the Federal Trade Commission, they're watching Amazon now and they're starting to take action. And it's both against Amazon and the sellers. So just recently, a lot of sellers in the Jewish community were really affected, I guess, personally, not, not personally because they lost money, but personally because they knew the seller was recently, there was a big, you know, Jewish seller that was uh, selling nutritional supplements and he'd gotten a whole bunch of fake reviews from people in his synagogue. And now they, uh, they, uh, they actually, the FTC figured out what was going on. They sued the guy for $12 million effectively wiped out and they sued him personally. They went beyond the corporate bail and they effectively wiped out his entire, you know, him and his wife and his kids, you know, they wiped everything out from this, you know, because they were selling, you know, uh, you know, nutritional supplements and people, I think somebody got hurt and that's what sparked the whole thing. And they wanted to make an example of it. So, you know, a lot of the Jewish sellers were super protective because they're like, Oh, you shouldn't be publishing this article. It's not fair to, his name and of course my response is well we're just sharing information so that other people realize that this can happen to them too so i'd say that's the biggest takeaway make sure you understand the laws of the country you're selling in and the states that you're selling in because you're selling in 50 unique states that have may have weird gotcha laws so interesting hey real quick on the on the prop 65 thing um uh, i'm in california um of course um, when I when I started to dig into it, tell me if I'm right or wrong here. Um, but it looked like when I read through the the materials that if you were a company under, I think it was like uh, five people that you were exempt. Is that true, or did I read that incorrectly? That is true, um, but you're exempt from like the labeling requirements, but you're not exempt from the requirements of like like. And I say labeling meaning you don't have to put the giant warning sticker that says this is this product contains carcinogens known to cause cancer and birth defects. Like sure. You don't have to put that on your product. But if but you still are selling comply. your product. Yeah, but you still yeah. have to comply, right? Okay, yeah. That's what I, that's and, what I thought. And, I just want... Yeah, specifically what this law firm is doing is they're actually searching for products that are labeled as not having any sort of heavy metals. 
and they're looking for trace amounts of like magnesium and zinc and um, lead and other mercury and stuff. They're looking for those. And so if it shows any sort of reading on those like dangerous heavy metals, that's when they're going after, after the sellers and they're getting some pretty decent payouts. Um, you know, so it's, it's profitable for them to do it because most of these sellers have insurance. And if they don't have insurance, uh, they know that Amazon's going to, will pay the judgment and then Amazon will garnish the, basically the seller account until they're paid back. So it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a niche profitable market for bottom feeders right now. Interesting. All right. Well, with all that being said, that's uh, that's a ton of information, uh, Jeff. I'm probably gonna have to go back through and listen to this again because uh, you gave a, a bunch <laughs> of great information. Really appreciate that. Um, before you go, a couple things. Uh, any any like, well, I, it sounds like you have your own podcast and, and things like that. But any uh, any books or podcasts or material that you can recommend for people to kind of like. Uh, kind of get straight on on law as it pertains to selling on Amazon, um, or I'll just say, in general, uh, or just motivational. You know, anything that yeah. that you you you've, you that you've uh, read or listened to that you you found really useful and or inspiring, or you know, anything like that. I don't know. I'm in the middle of like three different books right now, so it's hard <laughs> to say. Uh, one of them being the California Bar Review, which is super motivational. <laughs> get licensed in California, but um, other than that, um, uh. I wish I had something off the top of my head. I mean, I've read a lot of nerdy books like on income tax and accounting and stuff like that. And those, um, like actually I'd say profit, uh, I think it's called profit first, um, was the book I believe, um, that I read recently. Um, if I'm getting the name wrong, I apologize, but it's all about basically how you should be putting aside money for profits when you're doing your accounting. And a lot of people, it's a kind of controversial, um, <laughs> on whether, you know, whether to do it or not. A lot of accountants are against this book, but I, I find it, I found that it was actually pretty inspiring. It basically says that when you're, you know, everyone makes room in their budget for, you know, utilities and taxes and other stuff, but they never make room for profits. They just kind of expect this to happen. And it says, you know, the guy basically shifts that frame and he says, if, you know, if you get paid a thousand dollars from Amazon um, or any business, this is not Amazon specific, but I'm, tailoring it you know like when you get your disbursement from amazon if you have a thousand dollars set us take a hundred dollars out and immediately put it in to an account that you can't easily write checks from like maybe it's a savings account and put it in there and that's your profit and leave that there and only touch it if you absolutely have to then pay your bills and everything else with the remaining you know 900 bucks um or whatever profit margin you want to set aside for yourself and i'm just you know easy numbers Sure. But, you know, set aside whatever your target profit margin is, set it aside first and then pay the bills because it'll make you think twice about spending money because, like, say you want to get that new, you know, new label machine, you're going to have to pull it from profit. So then you're going to start to really analyze your decision making a lot better before you spend money. And I think it, it actually makes sense. That's some really good advice. Awesome. So Jeff, uh, let people know where they can find you like Facebook groups, podcasts, uh, yeah. websites, all that good stuff. Let people know where they can, they can reach out to you. All right. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, email is the best way to reach me. Um, if you have a specific, you know, legal question, it's Jeff at ecomattorneys.com. Our law firm's website, ecomattorneys. So E-C-O-M-A-T-T-O-R-N-E-Y-S. So ecomattorneys.com. Um, and then we also have a Facebook, several Facebook groups, but, uh, Amy's in all of them. So uh, we have Seller Central, which is basically like all things legal for sellers and business advice. So legal advice, business advice, whatever you want to see, we kind of talk about it. And then we also have Amazon Sellers Sales Tax Law, 
which is our bigger group that's all about sales tax on Amazon. So um, whatever you're interested in, you know, choose the groups or both groups that you find interesting and feel free to join. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much, Jeff. Really appreciate you joining us today and uh, dropping a ton of, of great uh, legal knowledge and kind of cleared up, especially for me, like you really cleared up uh, uh, kind of a, a lot of the questions that I had running my own Amazon business. Um, so really appreciate that. Um, uh, general, uh, generally Jeff, what we do is we, uh, I, I stick around after the fact, uh, for like 15 minutes just to answer questions, uh, call it bonus round. Uh, we don't include okay. it in the podcast. That way we try to tempt people to come in and watch us live every Tuesday at 1 PM. Um, okay. you're welcome to stay. If, if, uh, you want to jump out, you are also welcome to do that. Amy usually, uh, goes and checks on her, uh, pressure cooker to see, uh, if it's, if it's <laughs> ready to go. Uh, but, uh, Jeff, you're welcome to to stay or go, that's up to you. And uh, well, oh, and by the way, people, remember, we really, really appreciate it if you review, rate, subscribe to this podcast. We really, really appreciate it. Um, I think I'm going to do some kind of uh, sell roundtable uh, quick tips or extras. I just went and saw um, Eric Sue and Neil Patel down in LA. I drove all night because I really wanted to go meet those guys. Uh, they were really cool. Um, Neil gave me a verbal commitment to come on the podcast, so I haven't reached out to him yet to confirm, but, uh, sounded like he, he was going to do it. So we're super excited if, if, uh, we can get him on. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much for joining us on. Thank Sunday. you all. Thanks. Yeah, Jeff. Thank you, Amy, thank you, Andy. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it as well. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for live Q&A and bonus content after the recording at sellerroundtable.com. Sponsored by the ultimate software tool for Amazon sales and growth, sellerseo.com and amazingathome.com.